so excited to be back for another school year. It seems like we were just talking, it seems like it's been forever since we've uh, been on air. And of course, there's so many, so much changes and new protocols, I'm sure that everybody's learning as far as safety and getting back into a school year that I'm sure is going to be a little bit different than any other school year that we've had. Um, as we get started, um, uh, my, my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist and I'm in Maryland. And um, if anybody watching wants to drop in the comments too, as we get things um, rolling, you know, what state you're in or um, anything interesting or new about uh, this school year, we are back in Maryland kind of full swing with, with masks. And so, um, you know, gonna gonna see how it goes and cross our fingers and do our best. And it's been so nice. We started last week. Uh, it's been so nice to be back and doing the things that because I was virtual last year to be doing the things that we've been trained to do. And I was in a classroom taking data, and it was so exciting for me. So I hope that everybody else is off to a running start this school year. But I'm gonna pass it over to Rebecca, who's gonna tell you a little bit about how to participate tonight. Rebecca. Hello everybody, I'm Rebecca and I'm a school psychologist working in Lower Connecticut and I'm so excited to start to kick off our new season of School Psych Podcast. And so if you remember, if you've been watching, you can log right into your uh, YouTube account and if you do, if you're watching us live, you can comment right there alongside the video. If you'd like to send a more private comment because the video is recorded and sometimes we like to flash the comments across our YouTube screen because um, all of you have such great questions and comments to share. But if you'd like to send a more private question or comment, you can do so on Facebook on either of the podcast, uh, the, the pages, School Psych podcast page or School Psych, your school psychologist. So just, just send an inbox message. I'll be looking for notifications there. And if you're a Twitter user, you can tweet using the hashtag Psych Podcast. So I'll be looking out for all of those um, connections online on social media tonight and after if you listen to the recorded broadcast on, on any of our um iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, any of those platforms. And before we begin, I would just like to take a quick break to talk about our sponsor, Med Travelers. As a school psychologist, having a strong support system in your career is instrumental in finding the placements and opportunities that fit your goals. That's why we're proud to partner with Med Travelers, the industry leader for staffing school psychologists in districts nationwide, offering the advantage of W-2 employment status, along with full health insurance coverage and 401k retirement options. Med Travelers is a true advocate for your career success. To learn more about Med Travelers and discover the ways they can help you succeed in your school psychology career, visit medtravelers.com forward slash school site. Thank you. And I'm going to pass it off to Eric. All right. Thank you, Rebecca. My name is Eric and I am a school psychologist also in the state of Connecticut. And we're excited to be back back to the school, back to the things that we do, um, back to connecting with students and families and back with our podcast. So it's it's great to kind of get the routine going again and sort of walk this, this path, which will be a little new this year as it always is, but also familiar too. So we are excited to have Lenore Skenazy here and I'll tell you just a little bit about her today. And um, uh, before we speak with her, she is the president of Let Grow, a nonprofit promoting childhood independence and resilience and founder of the Free Range Kids Movement. She's also a speaker, blogger, syndicated co columnist, author, and reality show host. 
(laughs) It's been a while. (laughs) (laughs) She is a mother who lives in Queens. Her controversial decision to let her then nine-year-old become uh, uh, take the New York City subway home alone became a national story and prompted massive media attention. Uh, She received a lot of pushback and was even dubbed the America's worst mom as a response. Um, Lenore has founded the book and blog Free Range Kids with the aim of fighting the belief that our children are in constant danger from creeps, kidnappers, germs, grades, flashers, frustration, failure, baby snatchers, bugs, bullies, and so many perils. Um, (laughs) The Let Grow Foundation was co-founded with Daniel uh, Shuckman, uh, Dr. Peter Gray, and Professor Jonathan Haight, and continues the quest to make it easy, normal, and legal to give kids back some of the old-fashioned independence uh, of thought and deed. So welcome, Lenore. We're so happy to have you here. Hey, Eric, this is cool. It's so rare to do a live podcast. I I can't wait. I hope there's some comments. Let's put it that way. Yes, I'm sure there will be. Can, can, as we start, can you tell us just about the uh, controversial decision uh, when you let your, your then nine-year-old ride the subway? What was, what was happening? Um, well, he had been asking me and my husband, who you never hear of as America's worst dad, uh, if we would take him someplace he'd never been before and let him find his own way home by subway. One day we finally said yes. I took him up to a place he hadn't been, which is Bloomingdale's, because I'm a thrifter. And uh, I left him in the handbag department after explaining today's the day. It wasn't like he was looking around and didn't know where mom was. And sure enough, he did indeed take the subway home. I don't think I'd be talking to you now. And then he had to take a bus across town. And when he came in, he was so like levitating. He was so proud uh, that we were all happy, but I didn't think of writing a, it as a column, even though I'm a columnist, because it wasn't that big a deal. It was just a nice thing that he'd done that he was ready for. Our older son had not asked to do that at age nine. He calls himself the control group. Um, but a couple months later, I had nothing to write about. Can I write about my son taking the subway? He's fourth grade. Other fourth grade moms weren't doing this yet. And my editor said yes. And two days after that column appeared, I was on the Today Show, MSNBC, Fox News, and NPR, um, defending myself and getting that America's Worst Mom name. Um, But I started the blog, the Free Range Kids blog, that weekend because I didn't want people to get the wrong impression, and and they do (laughs) when you're in the media. So, But if you're fighting back and you have your own blog, you can say, I love safety, which is so true. I love helmets and car seats and seatbelts. The the nine-year-old is 23. He rides a skateboard. I wish he didn't. Uh, You know, so I, I just wanted to say that you can love safety, love your kids, and love the idea of giving them some of the freedom that you probably had as a kid when you played outside or walked to school or went to a friend's house without your mom arranging a play date. And, and since that's the story that I've been on for all these years, it's, I just learned a whole lot about how, how less independent we are making kids almost by the day. I think COVID had a couple of impacts, good and bad, and I'm not an expert in that. Um, but I am an expert in how the culture has changed over the course of a generation or two to sort of suck out our confidence in what we think kids can do and suck out our confidence as parents. And that's why I never get down on helicopter parents. I get down because I'm part helicopter. (laughs) I can't possibly do that. But also I feel like this culture has been driving us crazy with fear and it's been really effective and it's not doing us or our kids any favors. Yes. (laughs) I so agree with, with that. And I think that, 
Some of that is evidenced by the terrible increase in anxiety disorders that our young children um, and young uh, adolescents are experiencing much more and significantly um, bigger numbers than they were um, in 2007, for example. I think 2008 is the year that there was just a big spike. And some people say, and you may be familiar with this um, conversation, some people say that was because that's when the iPhone kind of took hold. And um, what do you think about that? What Do you, do you think that uh, technology um, has a, a role to play in all of this? I think technology has a lot of different roles to play in how we're parenting and what we think our kids are capable of and the, and the world that our kids are exposed to. But my kid was right that the, the subway ride story was in that same year, 2008, and it was already crazy that a mom would let her kid out of her sight at age nine. And, and of course, it seems crazier because it's New York City and New York City is considered, you know, hell on earth. And so the subway must be, you know, the, the burning fire, uh, uh, the burning pit. Um, but really what so many people told me in 2008 was that they all remembered their childhood really fondly. And I bet I could ask you and you would say the same thing. You remember playing outside until the streetlights came on or going to meet your friends or going to the park and coming up with a game. And already that had disappeared and people were saying, and the reason is because times have changed and they're so dangerous now. And I'm a reporter. I was a reporter at the Daily News, New York Daily News, Superman's paper for 14 years. And I know how to do my research. And the research shows that, that it's not hard. <laughs> you can look up the statistics on the FBI. Crime was going up in the 70s and 80s, and it peaked in 93. And then it's been plummeting since then. And people don't seem to be able to absorb the fact that crime didn't just keep going up. And when you think about 2008, it's sort of the era, era, like if you were born in the early 80s or late 70s, you were growing up with those milk carton kids. Do you remember that? The pictures yeah. of the kids on the milk carton, have you seen me? And every week there was another kid and it, it's terrifying. They, you thought that they were all kidnapped by strangers, but in fact, most of them were runaways or they were taken a custodial dispute. The husband and the wife were divorced and one of them wanted them and took the kid away. But you grew up thinking that you know, the minute you step out the door and the parents who are looking at it, pouring the milk for you, uh, maybe back then they didn't pour the milk for you. Maybe back then kids still pour their own milk. But nonetheless, there was the milk carton on the table and it was scary. And so uh, whatever the impact of social media and constant availability through technology, this is something that was brewing a lot longer than that. Yeah. Yeah, I think about, yeah, statistically, you know, what are the, the, the chances? I, I think we, we do spend a lot of time kind of maybe unnecessarily scaring children um, that, you know, strangers are going to come and get you. And these, you know, if you're out of sight for a second, you know, you need to, you, you know, that there's there's danger all around. And this it's kind of a, I mean, you want kids to be prepared. You want them to know what to do and how to act if there is an emergency, if there is a dangerous situation. At the same time, you don't want them, yeah, internalizing some of this to the point that we're, yeah, like like you said, Rebecca, like creating and having problems with anxiety and whatnot. And I think a lot about in the schools, um, you know, with, with the drills and whatnot that we do oh, yeah. for school safety and shootings and, and things of that nature. Um, and I mean, you could even think about, you know, um, before that, it was more fire drills. Um, but it wasn't so evil. There's this, yeah, right? there's this, right. <laughs> it's different, yeah. Right, it would be an act of God. You know, it was uh, for, when I was growing up, it was tornadoes or fire drills. 
And first of all, they were kind of fun. You know, you were never really worried about these things um, for some reason. But the idea of a school shooter seems so much more, uh, not only is it, you know, somebody who's decided to do something bad, but it rewrites the world, right? And suddenly, I think it actually started when we started thinking that neighbors were poisoning candy on Halloween. Um, by the way, how many kids have been poisoned by a stranger's candy on Halloween? Do you know the number? Want to guess? Zero. It is zero. Yeah, there was a kid who was in Texas who ate a, a poisoned pixie stick and died, but his dad had taken out three life insurance policies on him, and uh, that was quickly discovered, and he was executed in Texas. Um, but there's there's no kid that's been poisoned by a stranger who killed. So, you know, the fact that you could start rewriting your normal nice neighbors, their normal 364 days of the year, but Day 365, how they come with the, you know, the syringes and the, I don't even know what poison you'd put in. Can't, I mean, I actually haven't studied it. It's probably hard to figure out how you would poison somebody. Um, it hasn't happened. And yet, once you start thinking like there's this hellscape out there, things start to change. And now, I mean, Halloween has changed so much, probably in your lifetime too, from kids getting in costumes and you didn't worry that they were too big and they would trip or too tight and they'd be constricted or the, the mask would occlude their vision. I mean, it was just you'd put on a costume and you'd go out and, and trick or treat. And now, you know, I, I live in New City, so I don't see this, but I've heard that there's parents driving after the kids. Have you seen this? Yes? Yes, yes. in the verbs. I've yeah. Yes. And and then there's also something called trunk or treat. Do you know about trunk or treat? Everybody does. Okay. Which always seems like the worst idea. You're worried about kids and crime. So you teach them, remember, children, go to someone's trunk when they offer you a treat. <laughs> you know, it's like that's gonna help them. Yeah. But the point is the idea of trunk or treat, the idea of putting, you know, having cars arranged in a circle in a parking lot so the kids can just go from car to car and get treats while supervised. Um it, it's an insult to the human spirit to me because it, it reduces all the excitement of Halloween, which is going out on your own, cold calling. You're like doing a job, right? You're dressed like an adult. Sometimes it's nighttime. Um, you're finally given one chance to be a person in your neighborhood and not just a kid. And all that is replaced by, well, they're getting candy. What more do they want? It's a really... It's a it's a such a reductionist idea of what the holiday is. Candy is the reward, but everything around it used to be about independence, and now it's just candy, 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 and probably more candy because it's just you know really easy. You don't have to go from yard to yard; it's right there, trunk to trunk. That, that is so sad. I wonder. Do you know? I I remember in um, the suburbs of New York there was a mom whose kids were fighting on the way home from school. I remember this. I met her at, a, at a, some kind of law dinner. Yeah, her kids were fighting and she said, you kids, you know, you keep it up. Don't make me stop this car. And they kept it up and she stopped the car and she had them walk home. And I literally don't remember what age they were. Do you? They were elementary age. I want to say one was, you know, maybe seven and one was like nine they were elementary school age i think but i remember my kids were around the same age thinking i might do that you know yeah. and this mom, she was arrested correct 
they came to her I, house. I don't remember if she was arrested or just like dragged through the mud in social media. Um, but whatever it was, she didn't look too, I said, I said, let's have a picture together. She didn't look like, like this had been the highlight of her life being called that. Um, but the point is that, I mean, that, that illustrates a couple of things. One is our national pastime, which is shaming moms, which is probably a, a terrible idea. And secondly, um, it's, it's not just shaming them. It's thinking like, well, she put them in danger. And we almost think, you, you, what did you mention this just before? The minute you take your eyes off your kids, you know, they're fine. Now they're in danger. <laughs> like um, there's something that has changed since I was a kid, which is the idea that the second that you are not watching your kids, or at least electronically watching your kids, um, they are in danger and you're a lazy hussy who should be um, ashamed of yourself because you don't care if they live or die. The, the thing, you guys are psychologists and maybe, I mean, I, I ask everybody this question and I, I still am searching for the answer, which is that how come my mom, who was a stay-at-home mom, quit her job so she would be at home with me and my sister, um, let me walk to school at age five and when I got to the corner, the crossing guard was another kid because age 10 was trusted with stopping traffic and helping the five-year-olds. And, and, and that wasn't considered bad. Uh, she wasn't raked through the pole. The five-year-old, my God, walking to school. And, and, and what she didn't do that we do now that I wonder about is she didn't go, well, if something terrible happened, I could never forgive myself. Um, you know, and then she couldn't think of like, what about Adam Walsh? What about Aton Pads? What about JC Duke? There wasn't this litany easily available to her brain of kids decades apart who had, you know, met with terrible fates. I just, I'm very interested in the way we go to the very darkest place automatically now. And, and I'll just, I'll, I'll stop rattling on in one second. But the other day I was talking to a bunch of psychiatrists. I was doing a psychiatry grand round. And this one lady, older than me, probably 70 or something, was talking about how she loved her own childhood and she was so proud because her 12-year-old was actually walking, wanted to walk to and from the mall recently. And she was so glad because it was four miles and she walked all the way there and then she texted. Oh no, we might have lost connection. But um, recognizing that this was a great developmental step for her granddaughter, also said, her goddaughter, not her granddaughter, but also framed it as like, and you know, it was a pretty public place, so the kidnappers couldn't necessarily get her without somebody seeing her. And so even when she was happy about it, she couldn't help but frame it as an abduction that thank God didn't happen. And that strikes me as a, um, a very strange America 2021 quirk that isn't happening in the rest of the world and wasn't happening until the last generation to see everything in terms of danger that that you're always weighing well I couldn't you know if this happened to her I would feel so terrible so it's not worth letting her go outside play outside walk to school go to a friend's house ride a bike that's new yeah and I think another side of the of the, it's not so much shaming um, in schools and daycare, but it, I think it's just fear of litigation. Like, so pa parents can be shamed for their negligent choices, right. <laughs> but schools are so afraid of being sued that um, I think it was uh, maybe 
in reference to your work in the coddling of the American mind, I think, where they there was the discussion of playgrounds and how safe they're so safe that they're not very much fun. And they also don't necessarily um, help kids develop their motor skills the way that yeah. um, playgrounds used to do for it. Was that, is that in the coddling? Am I right remembering that? It's so hard to tell because there's a lot that I've read about it. Um, the coddling also talks a lot to Peter Gray, who's one of the other co-founders of Let Grow, who talks about how important free play is, whether the playground equipment is boring or not. If you have a lot of kids together, especially if they're mixed ages, things are going to happen. But not if recess is really short and not if there's always an adult intervening. And so one of the things Peter has sort of devoted his life to is trying to come up with ways to recreate something that is next. Uh-oh, you're frozen for a second. Hopefully she'll come Hopefully back. Hopefully she'll come right before, back. Yeah. Well, there Am we I go. back? Yes. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, frozen. That's, uh, you know, from movie to our lives. Anyways, what Peter writes about is that when you have mixed age kids together, um, they will come up with something to do. And when they are doing that, even in the arguing, even in the planning, even in the frustration, an extremely important thing is happening. I, I want to get to the psychological effects on kids of no independence and not a lot of chance to, um, to play on their own because I think that these are really big drivers of anxiety and I think providing kids with more opportunities to just play and to do things on their own and to prove themselves to themselves to their parents to their peers it's it's really it's like a it's like a vitamin or possibly like a drug I mean it's something that that changes kids anxiety levels or at least that's what we've seen at let grow so in terms of play um, when you have a bunch of mixed age kids which you don't generally have at recess and you don't have much time at recess um, a couple things happen, or a bunch of things happen, and one of them is that kids learn to figure things out. You know, let's make a game. What are we going to do? Well, we have all these buckets. Well, let's build a wall. Well, how? Let's try it this way. Oh, it's falling down. Let's do it this other way. And and when kids are, um, when the older kids are with the younger kids, everyone thinks, oh, there's going to be bullying. But from our experience, there's been the opposite because there's a sort of, I don't know, like a maturing thing. Like you're the older kid on the playground, and normally you're just with the other. 10 year olds, right? You're at Little League with the other 10 year olds who can throw the ball the fastest, the hardest, make the most hits. But you're the 10 year old and you're throwing the ball to a six year old or a five year old, you almost automatically do it a little more gently because you don't want to look like a jerk, right? And in doing that, there's, you know, that's the development of empathy. It's sort of hard to empathize when everybody is exactly you, either better or worse. But if there's a six year old, there's a little empathy. I remember being like that kid. And then the, the little kid who, who doesn't hit the ball at all and is about to cry and he wants another turn, but he's not going to do that in front of the 10-year-olds, you know, the gods who are 10 years old on the playground. And so he holds it together and he goes to the back of the line to wait his turn, just like the older kids. And that's the beginning of executive function. And if you have a, an, I'll give you one quick example of a play club. So Let Grow, the organization that I run, which is a nonprofit, recommends that schools do a let grow play club, especially if you can this year with masks or whatever, but outside, before school or after school, just have all the kids there who want to be there. And the adults don't organize the games and they don't solve the arguments. And in one play club down in South Carolina, where they, they were doing the play club, actually they did it during COVID too. But before COVID, the kids had made a giant um, leaf pile. 
And all the kids were taking turns jumping in the leads. It was really fun until one kid jumped in the middle and wouldn't move. He was just, you know, a, you know, I don't want to call him a bully, but he was disrupting the game. Let's put it that way. And all the kids are like, move, get out of the way. You're in the middle. We want to take our turns. Um, but the adults didn't do anything. And so after a while, the kids said, well, and I don't think they phrased it this way, but it's like, clearly he wants attention. Let's not give it to him and see what happens. Um, but instead, they did start jumping all around him. And the kid got bored and he left. And what happened is the kids were presented with a problem. And they figured that yelling didn't make any sense and walking away to make any sense and paying attention to him didn't make any sense. But, but, but coming up with a way to play without giving him attention was the perfect solution. But if the teacher, if an adult had jumped in, as the, not to the leaf pile, but into the, into the argument, um, they would have given the kid all the attention that he was looking for in a bad way. And the kids would have been like lumps, right? They wouldn't have been learning anything other than wait for the teacher to solve it. And when you think about a lot of things, but especially when you think about what is anxiety, anxiety is the feeling that you can't handle something, right? That it's going to be too much for you. You won't handle it right. Uh, you'll do it wrong and it'll be bad. The opposite of anxiety is doing things and even doing things wrong and realizing it's not the end of the world and trying another way. And as adults, we know so much about how kids should act, you know, give them the toy. It's your turn. Let's start now. Let's get the game going already. That we get the kids to the game without having them do all the work, I guess, of getting to that point, deciding if the ball was in or out, who's on which team, what game are we going to play, this is boring, and all that stuff is what starts building a person who is capable of getting through life. And so when we recommend play, we're recommending play not because it makes you brighter-eyed for school or it gets your yayas out or it's good for obesity. It's, it's there was a book I just read about play and it talks about how there's a keystone, there are keystone things like the keystone in, in, in Yellowstone, a keystone species was the gray wolf and they got rid of the gray wolf because it was scaring all the people. And by getting rid of the gray wolf, then all the antelopes didn't have anything to eat and they all died off. And I don't know, something horrible went awry and, and everything was out of whack because of getting rid of this one species. And if you get rid of play, that is a keystone for children. They need to play and they need to figure some things out on their own without our brilliant help, because otherwise they can't figure anything out without our brilliant help. That feels bad. Yeah, I think you said something so important, too, about um, handling some of this frustration and disagreement as the cornerstone for executive functioning. Is it really the basis of self-regulation? Um, I was recently reading a psychologist, Madeline Levine, has a new book, Ready yeah. or Not. And yeah. she says the same. She says, by the time she sees kids in her office in her private practice that need a little extra help, um, they're all some kind of failure of self-regulation, whether it be anxiety or depression or um, you know, self-harm. You know, they, they're just not able to regulate their emotions and responses to a stressful, difficult, maybe even traumatic um, situation. But so when we're talking about playground um, issues, I think we really do, when we jump in and help them solve, we really rob them of the opportunity, both sides of it, the kid in the middle of the leaf pile who is getting a little social correction, uh, needed social correction, and the kids were really frustrated with that and, and have to decide how to control that frustration so that they don't blow their whole 
playtime. <laughs> right. Um, so I think those are really valuable experiences. I find it's really difficult, especially in schools, uh, for the grownups not to jump in. I think we have anxiety about children feeling bad, <laughs> you know, and we want to we want to help. We want to take away that that frustration, and I do think that is a disservice to the kids. Yeah, I think that actually, it's it's so painful to watch a kid be unhappy or be left out, and I know that too. And I think that it's sort of this circular thing because we spend so much time with our kids now, and I'm speaking more as parents as well, um, that we see whenever they're frustrated or left out or not getting their way or kids are being unfair. This summer I spent um, a place where there were kids running around all the time. It was like a lab, you know, for anyone who watched. And as my husband pointed out, the, the phrase you hear the most often is, that's not fair. I mean, that's like 90% of their day. And yet you ask them and it's the greatest thing because they're playing. They never, they never walk anywhere. They're running somewhere to get something, to make something happen. And then it's not working perfectly. I mean, most of socialization among kids is, is they're socialized because things aren't perfect, right? If things are perfect, when are you going to do that? So, so I wanted to put in a, um, a plug for the other LECBRO program that we like to do through schools because just like the free play program, and it's not we do it through schools. You just go to lecbro.org and you download how to run a play club, and it explains there's you know the rules for the kids and what a what a you know an adult who's the supervisor doesn't do, and it's just it's very simple. Um, but the other project that we have is literally called the Let Grow Project, and that is where teachers or counselors uh, give kids the homework assignment of go home and do something new on your own that you kind of want to do that you haven't done yet, but without your parents. And they show it to the parent, and the parent goes, hmm, <laughs> and the kid goes, yeah, and there's a list of things they can do. You can come up with your own list. The schools come up with their own list. Sometimes the teacher will will brainstorm with the kids, but it could be anything, you know, walk the dog, ride your bike, get a slice of pizza, make dinner for the family, just anything that's a little bit more grown up from K through eight uh, than you've done before. And the reason this is such an important and simple thing to do is that as much as it changes the kid, you know, like the kid goes and rides his bike, you know, finally I got to ride my bike to my friend's house, you know, and he comes home and he's happy and he's proud. It changes the parent so much, maybe more. I mean, the parent has only seen, you know, thank God she wasn't kidnapped or I don't know how I would feel if I'd let her go or whatever. And then instead they see their kid has this blossoming young man and he got the bread for dinner or she went to grandma's house or I love what you drew on the sidewalk without me there all the time. It changes kids and parents to the point where they can't remember why they didn't do these things before. And it's the push of the school saying it's time for you to do this that gets the parents to do it. And the, and the schools don't have to worry about liability because the parents and the kids together decide what it is they're going to do. It's not like the school says everyone must ride the subway at age nine, you know? So, um, I just have to put in a word for that as, as possibly a, a huge and quick antidote to anxiety because that's what we've been seeing. And this year we're actually doing like scientific studies to see if it really does, um, you know, uh, scientifically and measurably change anxiety levels. We've, we've done little surveys. People have said their anxiety levels go down, but now we're going to study it. 
That's that's so awesome, and I, I look forward to to checking in on that and seeing how it goes. Some of this conversation you, you can be part of it. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing is, we need more schools to do it, and we have surveys. You can take before and after surveys; It'd be great. Anybody wants to do this, fantastic. Awesome. Will you be able to provide us with a link? Uh, maybe we can post too, so that anybody who's interested. Awesome. I, I can do it right now. Yeah, it's, it's letgrow.org, and then you look at school programs. Awesome. Some of this conversation is reminding me of this kind of concept of, of boredom and that, you know, I, I think about my own children and they'll be like, I want to get on the iPad. And they're like, no, you can't do that. And then they go to, well, will you do this with me? Will you play with me? Will you do this card game with me? And sometimes I'm just like, you know, even though maybe I'm free or I'm available, yeah. it's just like, no, I can't. You need to play on your own. And I'm bored. I'm bored. I'm bored. But then from that boredom, so often comes this creativity. And the next thing I know, I, I turn around and they They've got, you know, dragons and monsters and, and things and, um, you know, they, they can do this play and they learn from this play. And um, I think it's so important. And if we're constantly entertaining them or giving them devices and things, then it does kind of take away from that. Yep. <laughs> One word. Yep. Yeah. I mean, not that my kids are, not that my kids are ever that creative um, on their own, but I do think that the idea that parents have to be entertaining their kids all the time. It's, people sometimes think this is an upper middle class issue. And then I point them to the study of 3,000 something student, uh, parents across the economic spectrum and across the geographic spectrum done at Cornell, I don't know, a couple of years ago. And it found that the majority of parents, no matter what their income, think that the most, uh, most expensive and labor intensive things you can do with your kids are the best. And one of the questions was, uh, your kid wants to draw, but you're busy making dinner. What should you do? And the vast majority of them said, drop whatever you're doing and draw with them. And that's, that's also new. Yeah. Heard of in other countries and in other eras, you know, parents had stuff to do and kids were expected to, you know, first of all, be more with each other. Um, and then also just be a little bit more resourceful and also help out more. It also, another point that I enjoyed from Madeline Levine's book was she said, it makes adulthood seem like um, a total drag. Boring, <laughs> a drag. You, you can't yeah. get anything done without checking in with a tiny human first. And she, one of the things that I love that she said is don't, don't watch all the practices and you know, like, yeah, it makes adulthood look so boring because the kids are playing their sport, they're enjoying their thing, and all the grown-ups are just staring into their phones for hours while practice goes on. And I really appreciate that because I was definitely not a, a practice mom. <laughs> practice not. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I sometimes think that it's, uh, you know, a, I don't think, I'm not a conspiracist, uh, but it does feel like a way to keep women down. I mean, there was a a New York Times article right after the book Lean In came out, and it interviewed all these, um, what did it do? Oh, it interviewed all these moms who said, I can't lean in. I have five, you know, soccer practices a week, plus I'm a working mom. And it's like, who said you had to go to all five soccer practices? I just saw a question go by, but I didn't get a chance to read it. So, sorry. Oh, sorry. It was just a comment that we had that I thought was good. Just, um, you know, how it oh, teaches yeah. them to problem solve, um, follow their instincts, be confident. So I thought that was right. And the, 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 it's hard to let go is so true. And that's why 
you know, I did free range kids after that subway article came out. I was free range kids for 10 years, lectured all over, including the Bulgarian happiness festival. I mean, all over. And, um, and people would agree. Oh yeah, I, I got to change. This is right. And, you know, things are not so great for my kids. I'd rather them be a little more independent, a little more feisty. Um, but, but they couldn't. Short freeze again. Frozen. Yeah, frozen again. <laughs> Hopefully, she'll be right back. There yeah, I am. Can you see me? Yes. <laughs> I was just, I was just saying that it's really hard to be the. I should know. Uh, the mom who does something, you know, who lets her kid, you know, walk home from the, uh, you know, get out of the car. You guys are driving me crazy. Or take the subway. You want to take it. It's very hard to be the one, right? Because because it's hard to be the one. But if all the kids in the class get the same homework assignment or all the seventh graders, or all the kids at the whole, whole school get the assignment to go home and do something new on your own, this is our Lectro project for this week, you know, do it by next week, um, you're not the crazy mom. And it isn't so hard to let go because you must, right? So the school is giving this little push and the peer pressure is down and the normalization of independence is up. I asked you, uh, Rebecca, before, if you were near Wilton, because Wilton was a town that's been a very let grow friendly um, town. They, they do a let grow play club. Uh, I can't remember if it's before or after school. And they started doing the let grow project um, a couple of years ago. And then one of the principals of the school there, and this had to be fifth grade or younger, said that she had this cool story, which is that one of the kids, fourth or fifth grade, had gone by himself to the local market and the the people who worked at the market were like, what's this kid doing here? And they're talking amongst themselves. And finally, one of them said, excuse me, young man, uh, why are you here? Where's your mother um, or father? But really, where's your mother? And he said, um, oh, I'm doing my Let Grow project. My mom's not with me. And I'm like, what's the Let Grow project? And he said, I have to do something on my own. And I chose to get one of your overpriced muffins or whatever. Uh, brioche, probably, um, knowing Wilton. But Wilton is a great place because this became normal. Other kids started coming into the to the um, market and it wasn't a crazy mom who didn't watch her kids and it wasn't some kid running away. It was just, it renormalized letting your kids have some independence. And that same town on Halloween, here we go, full circle, um, you know, the, the, the merchants in the downtown area give out candy. And it was a it was a kind of spitting, kind of cold afternoon, and the, the parents were with the kids. Ah, cliffhanger. She's frozen. She'll be right back. I know it. <laughs> Am I here? Um, anyways, one of the one of the parents said, "Let's go to the bar, or let's go to the cafe and get our get a drink because they can let grow." And the kids are going, "Let grow!" And off they went, and obviously. It's super safe to have a group of kids in a small downtown in a suburb getting candy from one merchant after the next, especially if their parents are a block or two away, drinking whatever. <laughs> but you need to renormalize it so that all the parents had something that they agreed on, which is we're letting grow, not we're crazy or lazy or skinny even. We're letting grow. So that's it. I like that. That's great. You know, the comment that you made initially when you mentioned your son, um, you said he came in and he was, I, I, you know, he was just lighthearted when he came home. And yeah. um, it it just, that sounds like such an amazing rite of passage, you know, that this was a moment for him where he had to be creative. He had to think, he had to problem right. solve, he had to figure this all out. 
Um, what a beautiful experience. Uh, you know, you know, it's unfortunate that that, of course, gets interpreted uh, very harshly. I, now I think it's pretty fortunate, but yeah, it seemed unfortunate yeah. for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but really amazing. And and you're absolutely right. You know, I look back to my own childhood and I was out when the until the streetlights came on and my parents didn't know where I was until I came home, you know, because I was at somebody's house within the block, you know, and, and the same with my siblings. And it's very different for my own children as well. So, I you know, I, yeah. <laughs> so just thinking about all this is, is um, you know, it's just making me mull over like, oh, okay, how can I get my son to ride his bike to someone's house this week or. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think you can. Yeah. Yes. There's been so much lately too um, in the, in, in like new books, Julie Lithcutt Hames new book and, and her first book too. And um, forgetting the author's name, but uh, the self-driven child and that there's a new oh, book. Yeah. The Sturix guy or something. Yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. And something yeah. Right. Um, but right. they all have this theme and the, and many of them also reference DC and Ryan's work with school psychologists will be familiar with um, human motivation theory, which says the three things that um, motivate people are autonomy, relationships and um, like achievement, accomplishing things. And so we really do want to try to scaffold little pieces of each of those elements for our kids so that they are motivated. But I think that, you know, sometimes they they may be like very proud of themselves afterward, like if they go to the store or if they ride their bike somewhere. But there are times when I have found my kids now are 18 to 23 years old. Um, so they're grown. But when they were little, there are times that they didn't appreciate what I was trying to do until later. And the example that I think of is when they were in, I think my youngest may have been in first grade, but you know, I had four kids in five years, so they're all young at the same time. And they decided that school lunch was gross and I needed to make all these like specialty lunch. Everybody had a different preference and somebody had no crust and somebody had this. And I did it for maybe a week. And then I was like, you know what? I'm not packing your lunches anymore. You have, you can have school lunch, which is lovely and available, or you can pack your own lunch. And so they started making these like very messy sandwiches. And I was so proud because first of all, they gained a little empathy for me for what it was like for that week that I was packing their lunches. And they, you know, they packed what they liked. They had control over what they put in their lunch boxes. It was all ready. I don't know if they were necessarily really proud of it, until later, until they were a little older, and then then they were like, oh, oh. "Pack my lunch in second grade," and you know, but it was definitely worth it. Highly recommend that for any busy moms out there. <laughs> right, right. Moms don't have to be so busy. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Um. Like I said before, it's it's a revelation when you see your kids growing up, and instead of thinking of them as this little delicate you know, breakable egg, you see the chick, you know, and then you see it fly. And what could be better than that? It's like, um, you know, when your kid takes their first steps, you don't say that was great. But you know, four, four points on the ground is a lot safer. So let's go back to crawling now. So parents love those moments of seeing their kid blossom. And we've taken that out of parents' lives. I mean, why is it such a drag to be a parent? You're making all four lunches. You know, you're driving them everywhere. You're stuck at practice. 
and you don't have any free time, but you also don't have that joy. I mean, like the joy is missing. The joy of seeing your kid go, you know, do it by themselves or screw up and muddle through. There was a, a Wall Street Journal article last year on how to raise a free range kid in 2020. And they didn't call me. And um, and it gave the example of a mom who said she loved her free time when she was growing up. She would go down to the creek. And this time was so important for her. You know, I don't know if I'm frozen again there. I just see myself going in and out. Um, she would play. And it was it was so important for her to give this to her daughter. And she did, but she also gave her a gizmo watch. And she was so happy that she'd done this because her daughter was going uh, on her bike somewhere, maybe down to the creek itself, I don't know. And the kid's bike chain fell off. And uh, so the kid just went like this and dad came and immediately, you know, dropped whatever he was doing and flew over there and fixed the bike. And I feel bad for the kid because there was an opportunity to problem solve or to rise above this danger or this, this difficulty, I should say, of, you know, do you walk the bike back? Do you hide it in the bushes? Um, do you, you know, try to fix the chain? I, I, whatever, there was no problem solving allowed. And the mom thought this was the same experience that she had had when she had actual autonomy and got to prove her competence. <laughs> Um, and and also build a relationship of look who I am, and none of that was there because a parent was so readily available and in fact swooped in. So I forget it's autonomy and relationships and competence. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That actually it's all three. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. So let me tell you about the experiment that's going to be done this year. Please. Um, so we have seen over and over again kids talking about um, sometimes using the word anxiety, sometimes not, how they just got more confident. A lot of times they'll say, I got out of my comfort zone, or I started being able to talk to people easier. I stopped one. Say that, that she, oh shoot, I just forgot it. It was something amazing, and you have to believe me. It was that she'd been, she'd been so so nervous that she'd been barely able to talk to anyone, even her parents. She would always think like, oh God, what am I going to say? And she'd be too embarrassed and she'd leave. And it was getting really bad. But then the teacher made them do project after project and they grew in confidence. One girl said something that you mentioned earlier about changing a relationship with her parents, that after she started, she, her, she first got her, her mom let her walk to church by herself. And that was really significant because it was, walking by herself and then going to something so grown up, you know, church and praying and being, you know, a member of a spiritual community. That was a huge thing. But she said that after she started doing these things on her own, she ended up having a better relationship with her parents. Can you hear me? How, how much they'd been doing for her. And she had a little empathy for them, you know, like, wow, they have to take, she had two younger sisters. She has, they have to take us all to our soccer games and to, uh, to shopping and to, you know, cooking for us. And, to recognize your parents. Oop. Frozen for a second. Okay. Psychologist, what is this system here? Um, I'm a Zoom person. Anyways, the, the psychologist there, who's also a psychology professor, is also a clinical psychologist who works a lot with kids with anxiety and with oppositional defiance disorder. Um, 
He's going to take four families where the children have an actual diagnosis of anxiety, and the only thing he's going to treat them with is the Let Grow Project. He's going to teach the, the talk to the kids and the parents about the importance of independence, how it you know changes things, and then each week the kid is going to have to do I don't know if it's each week or every other week or how how he's intending to spread it out, but the kid is going to have to go decide on things they want to do, you know, go to the deli or, you know, walk yourself to soccer or pick up your brother from preschool or whatever it is. And they're going to be measuring whether this actually has an impact on diagnosed anxiety. And I'm hoping it will, and I'm assuming it will. And it's, it's strange to me because I think of it, the intervention is real life, right? It's not a pill. It's not a program. It's just real life, but it's sort of a part of life that's been taken out of kids' lives. And I think we've taken out this keystone, this cornerstone of their lives, independence, doing things, proving themselves to themselves and their parents. And giving it back to them, I think, will be very restorative. And if it is, I think it could change a lot of how we treat kids. I don't know if I'm frozen. Yeah, we no, just got that sounds good. <laughs> we got a really good comment um, from a viewer. And she said that um, as a um, an intern that in Georgia, uh, working with kids with disabilities, she okay. finds that um, parents of these kids can be especially nervous about um, giving them more independence. And I, I do think that's a. Now you're frozen. Uh -huh. I am. Am I bad? I bet parents can be nervous about giving their kids with disabilities more independence. More right? independence. Yes. Yeah. It's a vulnerable thing, you know, because. I think they've worked so hard, I'm sure, to to protect them from, you know, the yeah. things that, that are hard for them. What do you think about that? Oh, I have so many thoughts, and I love this thought, this uh, topic. Um, first of all, at one of the schools that did the Lecro Project, uh, the special education self-contained classroom, um, actually, I'm not sure it was a self-contained classroom, but um, the special ed kids did it, too, where they had to go home and do something new on their own, and one kid you know, set the table and he normally was very oppositional and he put the dishes away and the aides to these kids said that they were the ones who liked the project the most because it was a way for them to show the parents how competent their kids could be because understandably parents do a lot for their kids. I would do. I mean, it's, it's a difficult situation, but sometimes you just don't realize how much your kids can do. And it's the same with the neurotypical parents, parents of neurotypical kids. Until you stand back, you don't know what your kids can do. But the other day, I had a wonderful conversation with Daniel Kish, who you might have heard of. He's the bat boy, although he's in his 50s. He was the one who was born blind and realized he could um, get around by echolocation, just like a bat does. And now he travels around the world. I was talking to him, he was in Scotland, teaching kids this. And he said the same thing, which is that, you know, you get so used to doing things for your kids, whether they're blind or not, um, that you really need a wake up call to say, wait a minute, you know, you've been scaffolding them so long, you don't realize you can take the scaffolding away and that building can stand. And so he was saying that, um, you know, people think their kids can change, but kids can't change unless the family changes too, and particularly the parents. And like, I, I never blame parents for being any kind of helicopter or overprotective in this era because we're all breathing in the same the same stuff you know mm -hmm. always being told what could go wrong danger is out there don't you care um, horrible stories about something terrible going wrong and people saying where was the mother so parents don't really 
Whoops. How ironic. She died in the middle of telling everyone how safe they were. Uh, no, here I'm back. Um, anyways, it, it is hard for parents to see what they're doing when that's all they're being told to do. I mean, on the one hand, yes, there's people like us saying, oh, it's great, let's celebrate independence. But so much is like the dangers in your home and the dangers outside and the dangers of this food and the dangers of this activity and don't do that. Um, so that parents are paralyzed. And that's why we keep proposing the Lecro project to schools because it's, it's an authority saying that it's okay to step back and it's normalizing everybody else is doing it so you're not the, 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 the lazy slut. Yeah. I know you um, just had that Parents Magazine in your hand and I, I wondered yeah. oh, yeah. if you could share a little bit about that, but also it's yeah. likely that that magazine, because it's a current issue, is also reflective. Uh, it's probably reflective, I think, of our current fear of letting go, which is largely exacerbated by the fact that we didn't have to let go during shelter in place. We controlled as much as we could, including their remote learning. And, and you mm -hmm. know, um, so do you think that it's going to be especially hard for parents this year as kids return to school and return to a new normal? I, you know, I almost. I'm not so worried about whether it's hard for parents because that's their job is to, you know, take their kids to school or send their kids to school and and step back. Um, the reason I have this copy that is so um, footnoted by me here is because everything is seen through the lens of your children being completely incompetent and unable to do anything. And uh, first of all, the number of times they tell your child to breathe <laughs> like they're gonna breathe. Trust me, I know it's on every other page, but they will breathe. And then there's art. Like one of the articles says that um, all change, good or bad, is stressful or disruptive. And I'm like, that's that's not true. Change is just constant. Everything changes. Every day is different. The weather is different. The the friendships are different. The assignments are different. And so to rewrite all of that as traumatic and difficult is a way to drive parents crazy and kids crazy. It's, it's, you know, a lot of it isn't that big a deal. One of the things they said to do is, because you haven't been doing drop-off recently, go do a practice drop-off. Drive your kid all the way to school, you know, make them open the car, walk all the way to the door, and then walk back. And, and I'm like, that's kabuki. I mean, there's no kid who can't figure out that you're at the front of the drop-off line. Everybody else in front of you is, you know, open the door and drop out and, and walk out. They can too. So they really sort of delight in taking normal everyday life and turning it into a stressful, difficult situation that only they can walk you through. And it's going to be hard. And it's going to take time. And it's a lot of effort. And my God, now you're you're driving to school even on a day you don't have to drive to school. So Parents Magazine has a way of denormalizing children's competence and parental self-sufficiency, you know? I, that's, you know, it's sort of a self-fulfilling thing. You read parents and then you start thinking, oh, I'm not doing it right, and then you get into this. And, and there are some articles that are always good and they certainly know they're COVID and they're, you know, flus and stuff like that. But there's just a lot that is trying to convince you that you must do everything with and for your child that's simply not true. Of course, that's me versus Parents Magazine. They have a circulation of trillions and trillions, and me in my living room, we need to eat dinner. Um, I don't know who you're going to trust, uh, me or your own lying eyes, but I think that they're wrong. 
That's that's so funny to me. But I do think, especially if, if you're a parent who's anxious about the transition to back to school or helping your kid stay regulated, you know, like if you're if you yourself are a little stressed out and anxious about it, then reading that kind of thing feels like, okay, I have a tool. So I I have empathy for for that reader as well. But I do think you're right that it does depict us all as in this catastrophic situation. Um, And I, I think that if change, change is constant, and it may be stressful, but stress is also good, you know, without stress, we, we really wouldn't grow and learn. And so stress can be good, it can be workable, tolerable, it can be bad, too, if it's chronic and and difficult. Mm -hmm. But, um, but uh, your school psychologists are here to help. <laughs> right on. I, I just have to say one thing about um, this magazine again, and then I'll stop because I will lose all credibility. But Parents Magazine wrote an article a couple of years ago called The Playdate Playbook. And one of the questions asked of parents was, if your child is old enough to stay home for a little while, and usually often does, but now she has a play date over, can you still go run to the dry cleaner? And the magazine said, absolutely not. They could get physically hurt and they went through all the ways they could get physically hurt. But also they said, you want to be there. Um, what if there's a spat? You want to be there. Uh, you want to be able to jump in before anyone's feelings get hurt. And to me, that is the reason that we are so crazy as parents is because we've been told that a child going through a normal play date, you know, arguing about who gets to be Barbie or Ken um, is going to be so hurt that it's our job to make sure that doesn't happen. And so that's telling you your kid can't handle any sad emotions, um, that they should never have to because you should be there, that you should be listening in on everything they're doing and every interaction is a, is a possible, a potential psychological disaster. That strikes me as the reason that we parents have so little confidence in our kids' ability to handle anything because we've been told they can't handle a spat with their friend on a play date. So we have to get more confident than that. We, you know, Churchill said we haven't come all this way because we are made of sponge sugar and, uh, you know, not World War II, but we are, we are bigger and better than that. And the kids want the autonomy. They want relationships that are strong and not just based on you're so fragile. Let me jump in. And they want to be competent at something. And if you're always saying, let me do that for you, or you can't handle it, or honey, here's how to do it better. You can do some of that, but not all the time. And that's why we need to take a step back. Yes, I completely agree with that as well. And I think that part of our reflex to take away our kids' distress with bad feelings, friendship arguments and everyday things is the reason that when they get older, they have a much harder time managing that. In middle school, it gets significantly harder um, to avoid feeling you know, the normal range of human emotions. So I think that we we need to help support our kids to understand that every feeling is normal and that they can handle all of them. Totally agree. You can do it. Um, <laughs> crazy Rose at the end of uh, Gypsy, but, but you can do it. So. Awesome. This has been so great. Um, I, I, and you know, it's funny because Rebecca and I are going to be on another um, on Instagram or something on Tuesday talking with a, a parenting group and uh, about routines and getting ready for the school year. And so some of this is kind of shifting. Yeah. How, how, um, 
you know, my thoughts and perspectives on some of that. So I think it's a really good perspective that, you know, we don't have to do everything for our kids and um, we shouldn't do everything for our kids and not everything needs to be, you know, kind of laid out for them. So thank you. Yeah. Uh, not that I was great at any of this. I mean, so much of it I believe in and some of it I can't do. I'm terrible at routines. So and I think I made a lot of lunches. <laughs> All right, um, I'm going to look for it. We'll look for kind of last minute uh, comments and questions as we uh, start to wrap up. But um, great, great, great episode. And I definitely learned a lot. And I, I think that it's um, food for thought for a lot of us going into this kind of anxious. I'm, I'm one of those anxious parents going into the, the COVID parent. situation. So. Oh, the COVID situation seems so hard. <laughs> I have to say that just seems so hard. My kids are yeah. older and I'm, I don't know how I would be handling um, kids going to school when they can't be vaccinated yet, you know, when they're too young for vaccination, just seems really rough. Yeah. Um, but on the other note, um, anybody who's out there who is a school psychologist, I am, I'm really, really reachable. I'm Lenore at letgrow.org. I'm going to put it in the notes here. Maybe that's, I don't know if you guys, anybody. Yeah, we'll post it, yeah. um, if you're interested in doing, you know, the let grow project and maybe even being part of our study where we're seeing you know, if kids' anxiety level does go down, the more they do, the more, you know, just independently. And by independently, it could be with a friend. You know, it doesn't have to be walking into the woods at night. Um, but just, I, I'm so interested in the idea of regular life as a vitamin, you know, um, as something that we sort of took out of kids' lives and that we have to put back in, like the, like the whole wheat. Um, you know, I'm interested in any other ideas you have for building independence in kids. And um, that's it. I'm just interested in hearing from you. The whole psychological aspect of this was one that occurred to me later. <laughs> so mostly I've just been like, it's not fair to take away children's independence. But I'm, I'm very keen to hear from school psychologists. We had a last minute comment that came in in question. Um, so a friend in Australia, still in lockdown, um, oh. anxious parents, um, how anxious parents and teachers, um, is Lecro available beyond the United States? Is that something that you're that you're doing or looking to do? Uh, yeah, it's available. You go on lecro.org, I just put it back in the notes, and you click on school programs, and then there's the one for the play club, and there's the one for the Lecro project. And print them out. You know, we probably spell things with a Z that you use an S with, but otherwise, you're going to understand the whole thing. And it's just, it's very, it's very simple. Um, so many things are easier than we think, and this is one of them. So, go look at it. If you have any questions, give me a call or, you know, email. Awesome. Um, I want to remind our viewers um, we are going to be back next week um, and returning to our um, every. Uh, what are we every first and third uh, weekend uh, Sunday of the month? And so we'll be back next week, and we're talking about writing with uh, Stephen Graham, who is an educational psychologist who studies writing. We've talked a lot about reading and a little bit some about math, and so we're going to dive into uh, writing next time. So I'm excited for that. But thanks to everybody, Eric. I know you're going to close this out, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, thank you so much, Lenore. This was a wonderful conversation, and uh, as Rachel and Rebecca both said, I, I feel like I've learned a lot as well. So oh, cool. we appreciate your being here. Well, before we go, we wanted to again thank our sponsor, Med Travelers, for their continued support for school psychologists nationwide. As the leader in school staffing, the genuine care, benefits, and guidance that Med Travelers demonstrates with school psychologists is a mark of a true partner in career success. 
To learn more about med travelers and discover ways that they can help you succeed in your school psychology career, visit medtravelers.com forward slash school psyched. Thanks, everyone. Good night, everyone. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Thank Bye -bye. you.